Welcome to Mile High Magazine with your hosts, Adam Morgan, Murphy Houston, and Melissa Moore. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping Colorado, presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Now, here's your host, Adam Morgan. One of the most iconic photographs ever taken at an Olympic Games was lensed in October 1968 at the Games of Mexico City. The shot was taken during the medal ceremony following the final of the 200 meters that featured John Carlos and Tommy Smith in the starting blocks for the USA. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. There's Questad. It's a good start. And Carlos, as usual, has burst out of the blocks. Tommy Smith running pretty well so far. And in lane two, Bombuk is strong on the outside. It's Edwin Roberts. It's John Carlos right now. It's Carlos and Smith. And here comes Tommy Smith. Tommy Smith, running through an injury, took the gold, with Peter Norman of Australia the silver and John Carlos the bronze. Then, what transpired on the stand during the medal ceremony, during the playing of the U.S. National Anthem, still resonates today, 51 years later. In solidarity with the Civil Rights Movement to symbolize oppression in America, both John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised a black-gloved fist while standing with heads bowed and wearing only black socks for a connection with slavery. Now, 51 years later, they are inducted into the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame, not for the world record 19.83 meters they ran on the track, but instead for that symbolic gesture they made, which to this day continues to say so much without uttering a single word. We touch base with both of them at the induction ceremony in Colorado Springs. John Carlos. Well, now, you know, the first thing came to my mind when I got the phone call that this is a Sunday and I don't do business on Sunday. But the name came up and said the United States Olympics. When it said that, I figured it must be important, so I answered the phone. And the CEO told me that uh, they are uh, uh, recommending that we go into the Hall of Fame and she'd like to know whether we would accept. And I was elated about it because not so much for me, but I think more so for my mom, my dad, my wife, my kids, my grandkids, uh, just to see the pride in them and the excitement in them to know that their father, their son, their husband, their grandfather is going to be on the stage that he should have been on many years ago. And uh, I've taught all my kids, be patient, because there's always a phrase that stands true today as it stood 50 years ago or more. The importance of family to the athlete, because after the demonstration and that stuff. They were the ones that kept you sane. They were the ones that that were there no matter what the rest of of America did. And then they were there when you were training, getting ready to do it. For sports, and they continued on beyond sports. You know, that was my rock years ago. It's my rock today. If society didn't wake up, open their arms, and greet me and, and say we had to change our mind or we have a new vision, that's all right. Because I still have my wife and I still have my kids. I still have the remembrance of my mom and dad in terms of how they raised me and the values that they gave me. My values and my views were prevalent on that victory stand. It hasn't changed. If I have to make a statement tomorrow, I'm going to make that statement tomorrow. Because I'm not really concerned about getting in the Hall of Fame here at the Olympics. I'm concerned about getting in God's Hall of Fame. That's the one that I think everyone should be trying to get in. All right? What do you say to today's young athletes? 
African-American athletes and maybe saying, you know, if I'm not playing football or basketball, I'm not doing anything. You know, you have to go there because there, there's a lot to be said for track, track and field. Well, you know, the track runners are the grandfather of sports. Okay, no doubt about it. You know, uh, when you sit back, you think about soccer. Soccer might be the first child of, of track and field. Runners were there, and someone just happened to one day take a ball and drop the ball, and somebody kicked it. Then they gave birth to soccer. But we are the number one sport in the world, and this is why it's such a big uh, ordeal, you might say, in the Olympic movement. When they have the Summer Olympics, what's the meat of the Summer Olympics? Track and field. When you have a world competition, what's the focus is that we are international. And by what we've done over the last 50 years or the last 400 years, you sit back and think about running. For an individual to run, he didn't have to have a big bank account. So many poor people took to running track, okay? So then when you sit back and you look at track and field today, you say, hey, man, we're the focus of society. And nobody ever talked to, well, not totally nobody ever, but doping and that kind of thing wasn't 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 the highlight or the forefront then. Well, doping was is not in our era at all in the United States. Now it might have been going on outside of the United States, but I think doping, no matter where it is, whether it's in the United States or wherever, I think it's it's a it's a curse on society, not merely just for sports, but sports in particular. Because when an individual uses drugs, that means it's like saying we're going to let a guy run 100 meters by using drugs. But when are we going to wake up when he runs zero for the 100 meters to realize we've made an incredible mistake? So those are the issues that uh, confront us today to make sure that we have a clean and wholesome sport or sports in general. Ask your wife something. Did you ever at any point on the journey here, especially after the... Uh after the, the Mexico Olympics, and everybody didn't like them. Did, did you ever think, what did I get myself into? What do I say when they say, why did your husband do that? No, I never thought that. No, I've always loved my husband no matter what and had his back. Always, and I still do today. Very proud of him. Tommy Smith still has a range of perspectives to share about that eventful day in Mexico City. A lot of us went to the, uh, the new African American Museum and you're there. That had to be such an honor. You had to be excited about walking in there and, and seeing, is that me? Yeah, that's you. I've been there more than once, and I think each time I was there uh, taking a picture, one lady walked up to me and he said, she said, sir, would you move over? I want a picture of the statue. I said, yes, ma'am. I moved over. Then she looked back, and someone said, Tommy Smith, and I answered. The poor lady just it hurt her so bad. So I want her to know she's okay. <laughs> take, take me back to October 1968. Now, when you and John got in the blocks for the final, all right? You would have to bring that up. That's right. Were you thinking about, uh, what's the exhibition going to be when I get done? Or you were just thinking, if I don't beat John, he's going to be talking about me. Because I know, I know how it goes in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Well, remember, I had a strained adductor muscle. I, I strained that left leg in the semi, so I was injured. Also, if you notice that I could not practice start because I had an injury, I was afraid I would really pull it during the practices. So when I got in the blocks, I was thinking about John Carlos, Peter Norman, uh, uh, Jamaican uh, uh, Bob Frey, and uh, uh, the uh, Mike. Mike Frey, and the other athlete from Stanford, and Peter Norman. I mean, that's what going to my head. Then all of a sudden, something happened. Cotton fields. That's right, cotton fields. I remember my father telling me if I don't win the race on Saturday, 
I would be out in the fields with the rest of the, uh, uh, my sisters and brothers next Saturday. In other words, don't waste your time. And you only had a little bit of time then after the race to go to the medal stand. Yeah, so right. where did you keep the socks and the gloves and all that stuff before you, well, because you, know, you had to grab time, them quick? At that time, I didn't know, didn't care. But, but the socks and the gloves, I do believe, was in my bag because we had to go back, prepare for the finals. So we had a little USA bag, which I still have, by the way, uh, in my bag, and they were in the dungeon. So when I was injured and almost hit the ground, they took me downstairs to put ice on the injured area. Uh, that's when uh, doubts came in my mind, would I be able to run? I think of the rest of the world uh, were wondering the same thing. But it kept blood from flowing in an area long enough for me to run that race. That's why I couldn't practice start. And that's why the, the thought in my mind was so eradicating of my winning that uh, I had to really use a lot of... Uh, Get out of the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All of that stuff, yeah. Uh, uh, a lot of science went into my running. Mm -hmm. uh, doing things another way. Yeah. That too, that was, that was one of the big parts of it. So as uh, unconfirming as I am now about explaining it, that's how my mind was running then. But I know I could not run full speed in the turn because of the left leg, which was my power leg. Yeah. And at six feet four, 185 pounds, one must be very careful about speed on a turn, especially if you're injured. Who came up with the statement? Did you come up with it, or did you hear from Dr. Harry Edwards from California before going to the uh, Olympic Games, who, were, who, who was even then encouraging athletes to make statements? Oh, that, the, the athletes met. It was, this, this wasn't a haphazard group of kids. It was the Olympic Project for Human Rights, which was developed on the campus of San Jose State University uh, and the brainchild of Dr. Harry Edwards and Dr. Ken Noel. So we were educated in what we were about to do or what was about to happen to us. Either we were going to run or we were not going to run. The last meeting the black athletes had, Dr. Edwards was not there because of his threats on his life if he had come. The last word was said was each athlete, no, no, there will not be a boycott. Then athletes stood up and said why they voted against it. So it was decided that no boycott, but each, each athlete would represent himself according to how he felt the country represented them. That freed everybody up. All the guys in the Army, all the guys in ROTC, including me, I was ROTC too, <laughs> uh, decided what to do. And since, since the Olympic Project for Human Rights was developed on the campus of San Jose State, John and I felt a necessity to move it forward, but we didn't know what, so we parlayed together and this is what we came up with. And that photograph has become one of the iconic sports photographs, like Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston. <laughs> you know, did did yeah. you think at that time that was going to no, be no, 50, no. especially 50 years no, later? No, we didn't do it for that. If, if, if I had, I kept more memorabilia uh, to sell than, than uh, I, I ended up with. No, we did it because of the human rights nature, human and civil rights. Nothing to do with uh, uh, the, uh, pandem the pandemics of all the other things that was happening uh, in the world. Just that human rights issue at the moment, dealing with uh, equality, dealing with racism. So the thing that's going on with Colin Kaepernick then, you're on the Colin team then? Oh, I know what was going through that young man's head at that particular time. If you look at his face, and you were in these situations before, you could almost see what was in his mind. And he told us uh, about the, uh, uh, what was really in his mind was the uh, police brutality, 
and racism. But see, there was more to it than that. That's all the time he had to say. And then people grew it. Some grew it wrong. Some put a mustard seed in the ground and came up with berries. Some put apple seeds in the ground and came up with persimmons, you know, all different ideas that came a different way. But Colin was a real deal. And a lot of guys and people back behind him, and I was one of the hardest pushers, yes. Last one I have is, what do you say to young African-American athletes now? They, they may think, well, fame is going to come from the performance itself. But sometimes fame has a different way of immortalizing you the way they have done with you. You know, I, I knew you did, what was it, 40-41 or something then? A, a 40, a 42 was the time then? Yeah. My world record when I held was 44-5. see. I knew it. Yeah, yeah. So what do you say to them now that you always have to be prepared not only on the performance side, but also to be prepared on how the public... It's yeah, going yeah. to perceive you. You got to be, you got to be uh, academic, intellectuals almost, to say what's on your mind. That's why the Olympic victory stand was so important. We didn't have to talk. We didn't have the time to talk. We could do what we did, so the people can see us. Then they could make their minds up before we talked. But John and I knew, but we couldn't say it. The heart is too heavy. It's too heavy. At the National Museum of African American History and Culture on the Mall in Washington, D.C., at the entrance to the sports hall exhibits stands a replicative statue of the medal ceremony of Carlos Smith and silver medalist Peter Norman. Peter Norman spent his lifetime being ostracized, condemned, and vilified in Australia for not renouncing Carlos and Smith. Although Norman ran qualifying times 13 times for the 200 and five times for the 100 meters for the 1972 games, Australia purposefully left him off the team. While Carlos and Smith were being celebrated by African Americans in the U.S., Peter Norman suffered alone in Australia. Then the country was still governed by apartheid. In 2012, the Australian Parliament formally apologized to Peter Norman for leaving him off that 1972 Olympic team. However, the gesture was way too late, as Peter Norman had died in 2006. Two of his pallbearers then were John Carlos and Tommy Smith. Time and again, Norman was told his life could be better by just renouncing Smith and Carlos. He continued to refuse. At one time, he even stated, I could not be prouder than to have been a part of that moment. Fact is, Norman has suggested they were the gloves, and the gloves belong to Norman. Smith's right hand and Carlos's left. During the Hall of Fame induction's acceptance speech, Tommy Smith recognized Peter Norman's contribution and requested the USOC consider a way to recognize Norman as well. What a powerful ceremony. At the U.S. Olympic Training Center and headquarters in Colorado Springs, an assistant by Dr. Karen Ivey for this edition, I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch, stay in your game, and many, many thanks to you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us.